Before we get to the show, we wanted to take a second to talk about another podcast that we think you'll like called Connected and Disaffected about technology and the future of politics. We all know the political status quo is dying. Well, Connected and Disaffected is digging into what will come next. Each episode is a feature or interview diving into major trends like online misinformation, neoliberal economics, and the climate crisis. Connected and Disaffected tries to get beyond the horse race political coverage to explore the issues that will shape the political and social landscape in years to come. And they're British, and they're in London, so they probably sound better than we do while they do it. So subscribe to Connected and Disaffected now, wherever you listen to podcasts. What do you guys think will be the next economic topic for or eight years from now, and how can we get ahead of those issues? This really interesting question sort of opens the door to talk about the glorious future of the economy. Oh things that are on the table are still going to be there in 10 years. Whenever you solve a problem, you create more problems. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. One American capitalist take on how we got into this mess and how we can get out. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So Goldie, we got this really interesting question from Cody in Florida. So the Democratic presidential race is already pretty deep, and we can obviously tell that the major topic this cycle is money in politics, healthcare, and of course, taxing the wealthy. If all these things are accomplished, what do you guys think will be the next economic topics four or eight years from now? And how can we get ahead of those issues? I just want to say thank you guys for everything that you do. Uh, this podcast is not only informative, it is also very entertaining. Thanks, guys. Well, I think eight years from now, Cody would be uh, posing this question from underwater if he's from Florida. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think, I think yeah. Cody, you forgot climate, climate change. change. <laughs> yeah. But I think what's super interesting about the question that Cody posed is that the three issues he surfaced, money and politics, fixing health care, and taxing rich people more, get at largely the same thing, which is the neoliberal takeover of our economy and finding ways to blunt the concentrated power in all its forms. We obviously have a huge money and politics problem, which has um, created a circumstance within which basically the only thing that Congress will enact are things that are preferred by economic elites. And there's and a tax lot of cuts. Yeah, there's a lot of political science evidence to demonstrate that. Our healthcare system is the world's largest price fixing scheme, a scheme which benefits no one but giant pharmaceutical companies and hospital corporations and insurance companies and effectively forces Americans to spend twice as much. Uh, per citizen for healthcare that everybody else in the developed world spends. And finally, you know, we have among the lowest rates of tax on wealthy citizens in the country, and as a consequence... And, and one of the highest rates of uh, income and wealth inequality. Yeah. And all of those things are sort of different flavors of the same problem, which is that you have to find a way to put the country back in the hands of the people right. and take it out of the hands of, you know, a tiny minority of Americans who have persuaded everybody else that the richer they get, the better off everyone else will be. But 
to be clear, his list is a massively incomplete list. Right. You know, at least in our shop, we have a big long list of things that we. Right. Yeah. <laughs> as we said, he didn't he didn't address climate, yeah. and he he didn't directly address wages. Yeah. That's right. But let's say, just pretend for a minute that we get okay. it all so, done. So, we, so, so what you're saying is we, we take the House, we take the White House, we take the Senate. No, and, whatever. Uh, right. So we have the power to do all these things. And, and we, we do. And we elect somebody like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth no, and we Warren, just do. who is promising just to do a lot yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Okay. So just assume that we do. So we've done all this. But there's a really interesting question embedded there, which is... You know, getting all those things done will immeasurably improve the quality of life of the typical citizen. It'll make the country stronger, more democratic, uh, less polarized, more secure, more productive, more, more productive, prosperous, more prosperous. But that doesn't mean we won't be still facing a lot of very serious problems. We will have a bunch of other problems. And the question is, what will those be? And that's a really, you know. Like, I would like to believe that many of those problems will be high-quality problems, you know. Like, it, how, how will we be able to, uh, you know— Fill the jobs. Fill the jobs or, you know, all of our private jets, right? Well, I'm not sure, I'm not sure we need <laughs> no, to No, there we go the, back to climate again. Exactly. Well, definitely, <laughs> definitely. I mean, more prosperity does—more conventional prosperity, right. certainly more conventional consumption does challenge— sustainability right and that right. will be that can will continue to be a very very serious challenge and we'll have to figure that out my guess would be absent the if we solved the issues we've just talked about um the larger economic question uh, eight years from now will be the continued devolution of the industrial economy into an economy of um, based on uh, information technology. Yeah, yeah, and, those, um, and there will be very serious questions and conflicts over that. Right, the right? changing nature of jobs, uh, the issue over patents, who controls intellectual property, and whether the owners of intellectual property get to monopolize the benefits. Uh, how do we more equally share in this um, a dematerialized economy where most of us are essentially working in the service sector. Yeah, no, that's that's true. So, Nick, not only aren't we economists, but we're not professional futurists either. No. But fortunately... We have one. We have one. Yeah. The great Kevin Kelly, founder of Wired Magazine, will be joining us today to talk about the glorious future and yeah. to address the questions of what the economy will be like uh, out 10 or 20 years. It should be fascinating. Kevin's most recent book, uh, which I highly recommend, is The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. It was a, a New York Times bestseller, and I read it and I recommend it. So you don't need any more than that. So my name is Kevin Kelly. I'm senior maverick at Wired Magazine and one of the multiple co-founders, and um, I write books about technology and its future. And on the side, I run a little newsletter called Recommendo. Why don't we start just, we're going to read you, I'm going to read you uh, the text of from part of this voicemail we got, which is our topic of conversation, and then we'll get into the discussion. Cody from Florida wrote us, 
the Democratic presidential race is already pretty deep, and we can tell that the major topics this cycle are money, politics, health care, and, of course, taxing the wealthy. Maybe I'm missing something else there, but my question is, if all of these things are accomplished, what do you guys think will be the next economic topics four or eight years from now, and how can we get ahead of those issues? Nick and I struggle to answer this, but we're not professional futurists like you are. Yeah, you know, I think this question, this really interesting question, sort of opens the door to talk about the glorious future of the economy and how we should think about it and what kinds of problems we should anticipate. Yeah, it's a really fair thing and I think an excellent exercise to go through because of the speed at which things are moving. We should have a longer term perspective and something that um, I and our my fellow members of the Long Now Foundation try to stress, which is the, the benefits of trying to take a longer view. So this is a great exercise to do that. So, um, you know, let's say 10 years, is that, that's the horizon? Yeah. I think things like economic things move relatively slower to other things. And so I think for one of the safest bets is that a lot of the things that are on the table are still going to be there in 10 years. We, we have something we call a pace layer, which means that different things move at different rates. And technology moves pretty fast, but governments and laws move very slowly. And so... I think there's this kind of this momentum that's necessary for governments, which they want, which is good, which is you want to be, you want to go slow. You don't want to make mistakes. And so I think some of the issues that are on the table now will still be there in, in 10 years from now. Ones that, that aren't there now that could come along, I, I, I think um, the economics around data, data ownership, these issues of who are we, what is known about us, is it equitable, is there inequality in the relationship of what we know, who knows us, will become more so because of technology. So the tracking that's going on both ourselves, quantified self, we wear the Fitbit, to tracking by our friends, tagging us in photos, to companies tracking us, to governments, this is becoming a larger portion, this, this, this surveillance is becoming a larger portion of our economy, and I think is going to move much more into become visible and power visible in its asymmetry, its inequality, and visible in terms of the need to do something. So I think that would be something to start to think about right now. People are, but to collectively kind of come up with some possible solutions which don't seem very obvious right at the moment. So, you know, reading your book, you're very optimistic. The The problems you see us solving are uh, high quality problems. Try to get into my mind. I'm not as an optimistic a person as you. What do you think are the worst problems that we may create over the coming um, couple five, of decades? Yeah. Oh, the worst problems. Let's put aside climate change, because that's pretty obvious. We, we can make problems that don't even deserve to be problems. So there's a set of things where we can do a much worse job than we are by being idiots. Uh, like the prohibition was. You know? Yeah, right. So that's one way we can um, make things worse. But I, I think, it, I don't think that's what you mean, but in terms of kind of like, um, what are some of the things that we kind of think are going to be cool that might not be cool? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 
I think there's a lot in the biotech arena we, which we can imagine having difficulty with, you know, controlling your genes. There's, there's, that's built in, there's this built-in uncertainty about the wisdom of doing that, even though um, it seems like we're going to do it. I think there's going to be better ways of doing it and lesser ways, and there's going to be no way that we're going to do this that, that can make everybody happy. Okay, so 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 that's just primed for huge discussion that are that are going to make abortion pale in comparison as far as um, the kind of the fervor that it will uncover. Okay, you know, like, you that's know, interesting. Um, making your child selecting genes for intelligence or not or something that that's very deep. That's very powerful. And yet, we're messing with the future, and so, um, uh, and then we're messing with our own being in a kind of almost religious sense. And so that's just going to, oh boy, they're, 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 there's going to be a lot there. I mean, people will die, and for their beliefs about this. And so, so that's that's not too far away. I mean, that only is ten years, but it's not that far away. I, and so, as those things come along, I, I think. Um, you know, in, in the same way we have the, the anti-vaxxing, which is kind of cross. There are people both on the woo-woo new age and the far right that are kind of anti-vax, but it's kind of like it's not it kind of crosses that line in kind of a weird way. And I think some of the bio stuff, we're, we're not really ready. And the AI kind of is only one little touch of what happens when we start to fool around with the nature of our being and asking these questions about who are we, what do we want to do, and why are we here. All those things are surface once you start to um, say, well, we're going to select genes or we're not going to select genes. That's, I mean, there's that eugenics, there's race, there's there's all these hot buttons that are, and more that are they're going to come. I think this is, uh, uh, if, if we want to rehearse kind of like problems that we should be thinking about, well, that's one of them. It's, it's not quite 10 years, but it's not far behind. Right. Can I ask you about uh, intellectual property ownership? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because you, you, you and Nick are very similar in your approach to automation and new technologies. You know, let the robots take the, the shitty jobs. You right. know, obviously, if a robot can do it, a human shouldn't be doing it anyway. And we'll exactly. just come up right. with new and better jobs, and the robots will make our 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 lives and our jobs you know better and so forth but i i look at a possibility with uh with patent law and intellectual property law the way it is where you look at a great example is um trucking we're going to get to a point where we have you know self-driving trucks and it's going to put millions of people out of work uh driving trucks but you're going to end up with one two maybe three companies at most owning the the intellectual property rights um you know uber google you know maybe some other company are going to own end up monopolizing uh the intellectual property rights on autonomous vehicles and under current law and our current economic system if if you own the intellectual property rights well you get to take most of the benefits of this new technology i'm wondering if you if if you think we need social innovations 
to uh, deal with these technological innovations so that uh, these new technologies don't exacerbate inequality instead of closing the gap? Yeah, I mean, I think that the best cure for, for this is that we want to make these monopolies as temporary as possible so we, we should continue to shorten the length of those um, monopolies that they get from, from intellectual property law. So, so basically, I think that the natural home for any idea, all ideas, is in the commons. This idea that somehow the natural home is in the individual is completely wrong because we know simultaneous independent invention is the norm. Whenever an invention is made, there's usually five or six other people who have the idea almost exactly the same time. That is the norm in science. That's also the norm in even the creative arts. Whenever something gets made, an art piece, a movie, a book becomes popular, there's all kinds of people coming out of the woodwork yeah. showing that they actually came up with a very similar idea at the same time. Yeah, that's because all new ideas are basically a, a recombination of a set of old ideas. <laughs> right, it's exactly. It's all combinatorial. So, right, and it all belongs in the common first. It's in the commons, and we want to and should give a temporary boost a monopoly to, to the first person to claim or to do it to incentivize people to kind of follow through. So a million people had the idea of an electric light bulb. That was not new. 100,000 of them took the next step of trying to figure out how you would do it. Only 10,000 of those actually maybe made a prototype. A thousand of them got something working, and only one guy, Edison, was able to actually make it market uh, a, a viable company out of it. But he was not the first person to, to do it. He was the 32nd person to actually have a successful light bulb. But he's a great ex example, Kevin, because he did it by building a platform. He didn't just build a light bulb. Right. He built the entire electrical grid around it. He made, he made it a platform. And so what we want to do is we have, want to have that protection be very, very brief, short term, seven years. So the thing about these monopolies is that they're, they're very temporary. They're just... They're going to last a short time, and then the next thing will come along to displace it. So temporary monopoly is good. There's benefit to it to those who are constructing it. There's a benefit to making a platform that can be shared. So we do want to have that benefit, but we want to have it very, very short, very, very fast, so that the next innovation, next disruptor can come along and displace it. But if you use that monopoly to build a platform, even if your intellectual, your legal protections have expired, you now have all the advantages of a self-perpetuating platform. Right. So the scale, that's kind of been a while, but right now this is that the scale of these platforms is phenomenal. So for the first time in the history of our planet, we have planetary scale platforms that are huge with billions of people involved. And I think the next platform with the smart glasses is going to be even bigger. And so the thing about it is, is that we have basically created a whole nother type or class of entity that we don't know really what to do with yet. So these are, you know, we invented a couple hundred years ago, the idea of a corporation, uh, of this, this kind of semi kind of half person, half corp, half company, half something else. It was this new thing that that we learned to, to regulate in some ways. Well, now we have platforms which are almost quasi-governmental. They're so big, they're so broad, they're, they're, they're so involved in our lives that they are not really just 
companies. They're not quite governments, but there's something like in between. Or Elizabeth something, something. Anderson calls it private government. <laughs> right. So, so, so they have some aspects of the government. And so they kind of want to be regulated kind of like government sometimes, but they are government themselves. And so, so we have to kind of invent a whole other set of things. It's like it's kind of like the, the employees of Uber and um, – not the employees, but the drivers of Uber and stuff. They're not employees. They're not contractors. They're a new thing. And so we, we try to classify them as employees. It's just that's not going to work. They're just – they're not that. Saying that they're just contractors. They're not just contractors. So we have, we have a new category, a new thing. We have to kind of figure out how this works, and this is what we're in the process of doing. The thing about technology is that we keep forgetting how young it is. I mean, social media is, I don't know, 6,000 days old or something. It's, it's, it's an infant. We haven't even lived with it. The only way we can figure out what these technologies are good for and bad for is not by thinking about them. That's thinkism. The only way we can figure out what they're good is by actually using them, by using them every day for, for years and maybe even for a generation before we can figure out how, what they are, what they want to be. And so I think we're kind of maybe too impatient. We're, we're really – we want to make a loss about things before we even understand what they are. And making a law is not going to help us understand it. We have to actually understand it by using it, by being engaged, by making mistakes with it. So I'm very much I'm against the kind of precautionary principle which says we don't use things until they're proven harmless. No, no, no. Proactionary principle, we, we figure out – by using things, and then we constantly have eternal, constant vigilance, keep coming back to them. The idea of having FDA pass a drug once is crazy. They should be constantly reevaluated because once the drug is out there, we kept using it for new things. And so this is the idea of evidence-based, constantly coming back to things, seeing how they're actually being used, measuring them, changing our idea about it, and, and steering things based on the evidence rather than what we could imagine going wrong. Yeah. So, so the evidence is that Facebook is dangerous to democracy. It has allowed itself to be used to undermine democracy, not just in the U.S., but abroad. And it seems to continue to be allowing itself to be used that way. Can we afford to leave a commons like Facebook in private control? Yeah, we want if, if it's if it's doing something when we want to modify its its thing, and so this is, is what's going on right now. Is okay, if it's dangerous, then how do we correct its behavior? How do how do we institute technologies that would bring the benefits that we want? So let's look at the evidence. Let's find out what it's done, how it's being done, and then let's institute new technologies that will correct it. Yeah, or, you know, new parameters. Right. So, so like, technology is like a, a thought made real, concrete. It's just ideas that are made concrete. And if I have, if I right now was to talk and utter a completely stupid or even harmful idea, your response to me would not be, Kevin, you need to think less. No, your response would be, you need to have a better idea. Yeah. So the proper response to a technology that is harmful is not less technology, no. It's better technology. So if, if there are some technologies of Facebook that are causing some harm, the response is not no Facebook. The response is a better Facebook, is better technology, better things. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that 
this discussion reminds me of is, you know, I think one of the core operating principles for our um, the political operation that houses this podcast, Civic Ventures, is that the problems in a society are roughly proportional to the distance between the rate of commercial technological innovation and social and civic innovation. And, you know, the faster commercial technological innovation goes, the harder it is to keep up and the bigger the gap is, the worse things happen. And so we're in a bit of a race to have the society's needs catch up with or, you know, respond to these really tectonically important new social technologies like like social media or physical technologies yeah. like Facebook. So uh, I would love for you to react uh, as a futurist to a little bit of our version of what the glorious future should be. Um, oh, because, I love to hear that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we have a very specific idea uh, about the society that we want to create and the mechanisms we want to employ to do that. The first uh, principle is that prosperity in human societies isn't money or GDP. It is the accumulation of solutions to human problems. And that can be characterized in a whole bunch of ways as in information theory or entropy, negative entropy or whatever you have it. But that's that's the difference between a prosperous society and a non-prosperous one, and that markets indeed are the greatest social technology ever invented because they're an evolutionary system which both permits and incentivizes groups of people to come together and cooperate to solve one another's problems. But the kind of approach we take to markets, what we presently call capitalism or neoliberalism, is only one of a variety of approaches, and our strong view is the way in which we have concentrated the winnings and socialized the losses in the present system both slows the rate of technological innovation and destabilizes the system because there's a few winners and mostly losers and that shreds the reciprocity norms that make that those high levels of cooperation necessary so what we very much want to do is continue to encourage a dynamic market uh, of commercial innovation, but constrain it in ways that ensures that everyone gets a a practical opportunity to actually participate. Uh, and we want to radically reduce the amount of inequality in the society, not eliminate it. There, there have to be both winners and losers in a competitive marketplace. But there is no earthly reason why a billion dollars isn't enough for somebody uh, like Jeff Bezos to provide the incentive to work hard. There's no reason for his wealth to need to go to 100 or 200 or 300 billion dollars when 40 or 50 percent of Americans can barely put food on the table. So the glorious future for us is a society that encourages innovation, that's absolutely committed to technology but definitely organizes itself to produce uh, more broadly fairer outcomes. Yeah, I I wholeheartedly agree. I I would rephrase your kind of first point that um, what we want to optimize with our society are choices and possibilities, which is one of the things that technology does help us do, but it's not the only thing we need to have, you know, regulation, all kinds of other governmental things to make sure that those possibilities and options are spread evenly throughout the world and that every person born has 
you know, basic things like running water and hygiene and education that helps us make sure, ensure that those possibilities which are growing are distributed around the world. But that's sort of what we're trying to optimize is this number of choices, freedoms, possibilities, options, and opportunities. And so, again, and I do agree that generally the, the market is this remarkable evolutionarily kind of tuned thing that can generate these new op- options and opportunities, but that it needs to be regulated in some ways managed to, to offset its natural unfair tendencies. I, I'm less concerned about the, the ultra wealthy because I think their wealth is kind of meaningless, but I'm much more concerned about the, say, trillion dollars that America spends on wars, that I think that much, makes a much bigger dif- difference in redirecting those into science, education, health, and, and that uh, if we moved away from this idea that war is permissible and necessary and inevitable, I think that alone would hugely affect us if we took that same amount of money and put it into our infrastructure, put it into higher education, universal health care, oh my gosh, all those things would just multiply infinite numbers in putting money into science and technology research. That's by far the highest leverage thing that we could possibly do with any kind of money. Um, All those things would, I think, actually do more to distribute opportunity and technology around the world than even um, trying to rein in some ultra-wealthy. And you may be correct, uh, but solving that problem uh, would be to address humanity's biggest collective action problem. Because uh, that only works. I thought, if, we were, I thought we were dreaming. Big. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> that only works if 100% of the people agree. <laughs> I believe in global governance. Yeah. Which is nobody on the left is all allergic to, everybody on the right is allergic to. This is like nobody likes this idea. But for me, if we're moving into making a planetary system, planetary machines, planetary, we have a planetary climate, we need global governance. Yeah. And so uh, with global governance, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a pacifist. I'm a policifist. <laughs> I, believe, I believe that we need to have the conflict should be resolved by independent third party. The idea that a sovereign nation has the right to hit back, that just leads to endless feuds and war. What you want to have is you want to have a, a force that's impartial so that if somebody does something wrong, you, the, you're, you say, well, okay, you decide and you get punished by this impartial force that takes that stops the, the war. So there's, there's enforcement. There's not, this, there's not violence. It's just that there's not war. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so there's one vote for the new world yeah. order. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we ask all of our guests this. Why do you do what you do? Yeah, I do what I do, first of all, because I have been incredibly lucky to be born who I am, where I am at this time, this place, with the parents that I have, credible luck the whole way through my life. I, I think luck is unevenly distributed around the world, but we can expand, each of us, we can work to expand the possible likelihood that people anywhere that they're born will touch luck or luck will touch them. So I'm, I'm interested in spreading my luck, spreading my fortune, spreading the opportunities that I have everywhere in the world, and to increase the number of options and opportunities that are available to anybody living today or yet unborn. And so I think the best way to increase choices and possibilities is to increase technology. I'm trying to increase possibilities in the world. 
Well, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fascinating conversation about the glorious future. And and I hope all those uh, wonderful visions you write about in the inevitable are as inevitable as you say they are. <laughs> they are inevitable, but we have a choice in the character of them. So we have a lot of choice about these things that are coming no matter what we say. AI is coming, all this stuff is coming, but we have a choice in what it looks like. And so let's make a better world. I love it. Great. Thank you, sir. All right. Wonderful to meet you. Okay. Thanks for calling. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. I don't know if you caught it, but one of my takeaways from this conversation with Kevin was his emphasis on the commons. Yeah. That, uh, did that remind you of a previous conversation we had? This is, this is George Mambio's theme yeah. in his book, Out of the Wreckage. That's his new narrative for the economy. That's right. Is to start talking about... The commons. The commons. Right. And that it's all of ours. And I think, you know, I think that Kevin made a lot of great points about that. And the, the other thing I really took away from the conversation was that the, the way in which he values the same exact thing that we value. He calls it possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, the maximizing possibilities. Possibilities and choice. That's and, right. And yeah. what we and we call that inclusion. What we say the golden rule of economics is that inclusion creates economic growth and right. progress because the more people you fully include, in other and, words, and the p- more people you give possibilities and choice right, to. to. Be, and, and at all levels of the economy as innovators, yeah. as entrepreneurs, as workers, and as robust consumers. That's right. And citizens, the better the thing will work. Right. Full stop. And we use the word inclusion because we think, as you and I have discussed before, it, it is a verb. Oh, right, right. It, it's active. And and the other thing that the conversation reminded me of so much, and again, a lot, you know, something that really animates our work here at Civic Ventures is is the is the notion of social lag that right. the problems in a society are basically proportional to the distance between the technological innovation in the society, the commercial in- innovation, and the social, civic, and political innovation, and closing that gap. And Kevin was so right that technological innovation moves very very quickly. Civic, political, and social innovation moves much slower. And and we have a political system in this country designed to be slow. Yes. It was the intention of the founders to make it slow. And this is increasingly a problem. I think is where most of our problems come from, is that we're in this era of ever faster technological innovation. Every year, things change quicker than they did the year before. And and a lot of the social unrest, the uncomfortableness, the the angst, the fear for the future, that comes from how quickly our world is changing. And our political system is incapable of keeping up with that. So this this lag, this gap keeps growing over time. It does. You know, and, and and again, this also comes back to one of our, you know, operating principles, which is local first, that right. you have to create social change, civic change, political change in cities and states first. So did we actually answer Cody's question? Probably not. Well, I think we did. <laughs> I think we did. And this is why. OK. Uh, I think that the there's going to be tons of problems. Uh, in the future. Yeah. And the big problem is that we don't know what those problems are going to be. Correct. Uh, that this is just the nature 
of technological change and social change, not just that lag, but as we say, whenever you solve a problem, you create more problems and that complexity just keeps ratcheting up. So the big challenge in the future is not, well, to quote uh, a great philosopher, there are known knowns and there are known unknowns, but the big problems are the unknown unknowns. Yeah, I think I've, I've paraphrased Rumsfeld pretty well. <laughs> correctly. Yeah. It wasn't actually a stupid thing when yeah. he said that. No. And it's those unknown unknowns, uh, unfortunately, Cody, that are going to present the biggest problems over the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years. We love to hear from our listeners. So if you've got a question for Nick or anybody else at Pitchfork Economics, give us a call and leave us a message at 731-388-9334, and we will try to answer you on the podcast. And in the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we get to chat with an extraordinary character, Bob Greenstein. Bob is the president and founder of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which is probably the most important institution doing analysis on the federal budget uh, that exists. Bob is a legend, so it should be super interesting. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.